You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Two Pro Tours, almost 100 national championships, over a dozen callings, Brendan, and the World Championship, the culmination of all this organized play, is about to take place when this pod drops exactly in seven days time. Uh, how are you feeling? What's your thoughts and feelings as we head towards this first ever World Championship? How am I feeling? Uh, yeah. I'm chilling. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I think it's a lot more stressful being on the player side. Um, I definitely felt the pressure going into previous Pro Tours, both Pro Tour number one and Pro Tour number two. Um, not, to, not to take anything away from that or to say that maybe my role is... Uh, should not warrant any pressure, but I just personally, it's it's not the same, right? Um, I feel very comfortable. I feel like the important things for me, right? Like I feel like my my understanding of the meta, how the decks play, and my ability to sort of, <clears throat> I don't know, break down um, what these decks are trying to do. Uh, I think that's very strong right now. So I feel uh, I feel comfortable in my role, and I feel completely relaxed because you know there's just there's not that same. Oh, am I going to make day two? Am I going to try to get this record or that record? And I don't know. It's uh, something that I really, I worked hard at uh, from my the sort of genesis of playing Flesh and Blood, genesis of playing uh, card games. But I know in the past, uh, bad results would definitely affect uh, affect my feelings towards myself and my ability to play the game and sort of all the time I put into it. Um, and uh, even though I got better at that, it's still always there. So yeah, without that, I mean... I'm more I'm more relaxed. I'm excited. I think it's going to be a great event. I think that the battle hardens and some of the metagame data that we have um, coming out uh, as we go towards this event has been very diverse. It's been changing quite dramatically, and I think that leads to an exciting event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I, I can't wait now. I'm ready to get on a plane in, uh, in about six days' time. That's crazy. And yeah, and get there and, and play. Um, so, welcome back to Arsenal Pass episode 81. While we do have a pretty cool preview coming up for the World Championship next week, joined by a very special guest, Brendan, this week we are going to be, we're piggybacking a little bit off of last week's episode where we had Michael Hamilton on. If you didn't go and check that episode out, make sure you do. There's some, some great stuff in there that Michael talks to around the philosophy of, uh, you know, I, I guess it's this like value equation almost in flesh and blood right now and, and that how that incorporated into deck building, gameplay, uh, decision making. And sort of leaning on the back of that, actually, we we did a podcast, I think it was January or December this year, Brendan, uh, a patrons uh, podcast where we talked about the kind of dominance of linear-based decks in, in Flesh and Blood and uh, the, this approach and philosophy to deck building. And some of that has kind of shifted and changed as we've headed into the last sort of six months. A lot more organized play, a lot more events, a lot more players, and a lot more high-level play. Before that, we'd recorded that. there was There was no... Pro Tour. So we've had two Pro Tours since then and numerous callings, national championships, big events, and some shifts in sets and design and uh, in, in philosophy. So we're going to pick up both off what Michael talked about last week, plus our kind of uh, original podcast that we did on a very similar topic around uh, deck building design and philosophy. And we're going to dive into, you know, kind of how to look at approaching deck building and uh, the more the philosophical side of it in this modernish era uh but before that brendan how was your week in flesh and blood 
My week in Flesh and Blood was quite eventful. It was very good. Uh, I traveled to Columbus for the Realm Games Battle Harden, where they put up an additional uh, $10,000 from what I understand. Uh, to the people competing in that tournament, it was, uh, of course, class constructed, but it was a two-day tournament. Uh, eight rounds of Swiss on day one, and then a top eight on day two, followed by a Team Sealed event on Sunday, which I almost, uh, me, Michael Fang, and Yongji almost back-to-back won, but unfortunately lost in top eight. Um but yeah, it was a fantastic weekend. Uh, I had a great time commentating again with both Flake and Charmer. Um, I'd be re- actually, I'd be really interested to hear uh, people's feedback on on my commentary at Realm Games. I kind of switched it up. I think last time it was a bit more, uh, it was a bit more comedy, a bit more bromance with Flake <laughs> and Charmer, and you know we had a lot more fun with it. This time I tried to sort of get a bit of practice in for Worlds and try to keep it pretty serious, pretty professional, and stay. Uh, stay strictly towards like the analytical side um, and breaking down sort of what the players are doing and what's going on with the macro and sort of micro gameplay that we're seeing on the screen. So let me know your feedback in the YouTube comments below and then hit that subscribe button while you're down there. Oh God, I don't know if I could ever get into that, Hayden. But also I got to talk about this other thing in my week. Been playing this game. Um, it's called Mar- Marvel Crack. It's a, it's a new mobile game on the App Store. It's a card game. Oh, it's it's Hayden, it's good. Um, I've hit Endgame, I've hit Infinite, I've hit Pool 3 Collection, and it's not bad. It's not bad. Hayden, Hayden doesn't like the game for some reason. I don't know. Um, but I figure that it, I figure that I would, I would share my appreciation for the game on Arsenal Pass because it is kind of a card game and I know a lot of people are playing it. Um, and I've had a lot of fun with it. I spent most of my team tournament actually playing that game because, (laughs) <laughs> Michael Fang and Yongji built my deck, registered my our team sealed deck for me, and I I was casting. So I literally came down, sat down for my round one. They gave me the five deck. Uh, I went seven zero and played literally every single game was less than five minutes, uh, and I just was playing that game in between. Uh, but shout out to them, they gave me the super OP ninja deck, and I was absolutely juicing my opponents. Anyway, Hayden, how was uh, how was your week in Flesh and Blood? Well, not as not as exciting, clearly. Uh, got a shout out to yourself and the, the casting team and the team at Realm Games. I did manage to catch some of the stream. Uh, not the timing wasn't perfect, but managed to catch some of it. And uh, very, you know, from all accounts, very well-run event. And I think it was over 120 players at that battle hardened, right? So uh, eight rounds and then a top eight. All of that coverage is available, I think, on Realm Games Twitch, which you can go and check out. Um, and yeah, let Brendan know how... Uh, how positive his casting was. Uh, Brendan, actually, question for you. What's your role on the podcast? On the podcast? Is that shifting? Uh, is that shifting? My role on the podcast is to just say controversial things that come to my mind before I have time to think about them. Um, and then take, take uh, you know, reap what I sow. Take the brunt of that, of that criticism. But I keep it exciting. I keep people on their toes, I think. O- outside of that, I mean, shit. When it comes to playing Flesh and Blood, I, I don't think... Uh, I don't think Sitting, sitting next to you, I have uh, too much to offer. <laughs> People are going to think you're playing a character now, Brendan. <laughs> um, <laughs> good week. Let's move on to the news this week. And Dynasty spoilers have slowed down a little bit, Dynasty previews, as we head into the official preview week next week. But that's not to say we have had a couple of extra cards come our way. And one I want to talk about, Brendan, you know, just we'll focus on one because it's, it's had a bit of attention I want to hear your thoughts. Sky Fire Lanterns. Uh, this is we've seen already a, a similar cycle in Illusionist. To this card does very sim- something very similar with revealing the top card of your deck. But this is a zero cost Runeblade action. 
a non-attack action. It defends for two. And at red, it says, reveal the top card of your deck. If it is red, create a rune chant token. Go again. Yellow, it says, reveal the top card. It's yellow, create a rune chant, blue, etc. Uh, thoughts on this card, Brendan? Because I saw a few comments on Twitter saying, wow, what a card. Yeah, very interesting. Um, this must be this must be brand new. It must have just come out. Uh, oh, it does the same thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah, when I first saw it, it was a Sky Garbage Fire Lanterns. That's, um, yeah, so same card here. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the red one. I cannot. Oof, I cannot really imagine playing this card. Um, I, ha- I mean the blue. It's like maybe, and I-, I think that there's going to be support around this, considering what we saw from the illusionist. But I think this card in a vacuum doesn't get me too excited. I could be missing something fundamentally. I haven't been a part of the conversation. But uh, yeah, when I see a red card that blocks for two and potentially and potentially gives you a rune chant token. Um, that does not get me excited, Hayden. Yeah, let's break it down. So let's say uh, we can use any of the iterations, but let's use red because you're probably going to play more red cards than anything in your uh, Rune Blade deck. Let's, and so there could be so many different variations to this, right? But let's just use Viscerai as an example right now in Class Constructed. We, we chuck our Skyfire Lanterns in there. You know, it triggers our Viscerai ability. Um, you know, it's a non-attack action to help with Rosetta Thorn. If, uh, you know, if Rosetta Thorn is still going to be in the format. Um so we've, we've revealed the top card of our deck. We've pay, played a card to potentially gain a rune chant. We play, what, let's say 32, 33 reds, probably maximum. Uh, so we're just above 50-50 to, to make a rune chant. So at best, we, we make a rune chant and we, we trigger our ability and we've played a non-attack action. It's a, at worst, we've just played a non-attack action. It's a, it's a pretty poor rate, I would say, on, on a card, you know. 1.5, um, roughly. So I, would you consider this to be 1.5? It Like, if it hits, right? Like, if it hits the rune chant, would you consider 1.5 since it satisfies half of the ability, like, you know, um, Viscerai's ability to create an additional rune chant? Uh, yeah, I generally consider the card that's active to be to be half generally. So, yeah, probably. And then you look at defense for two. It's going to be super interesting. Like, there could be so many other things that we get off of this, right? Like, for sure. revealing cards could could do something, right? You know, you have a card, maybe you... Yeah, there's a card like Caution, etc. There's so many different things. I'd be interested to to see how this how this plays out. I can't remember the wording on Caution. I feel like this works with Reveal, though, right? So, um, you know, it's it's one card we've seen. It's that common. It's a cycle. I mean, I think of cards like um, uh, Suckless Research Notes in Crucible mm-hmm. of War, and this kind of reminds me of that to a degree. It was always like, oh, could this be played in some way, shape, or form? Um, so we'll, we'll have to see. But that's kind of one of the, I think we've seen maybe two or three spoiler cards uh, in this past week since the last podcast recorded where we had seen a lot and we talked through a lot of them. Cards like Rock, of course, you know, the the, the new ninja equipment, things like that. So I have a question, Hayden. Would you play this card if it's just said create a chant token? Uh, do I get to look at the top card of my deck? <laughs> no, it just says create a chant token. There's no variance. And we can even add that you, maybe I guess you could look at the top card of your deck. I think it's a too spicy then because then you can fix your like... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's better for some of your... Well, your I actually think the reveal is kind of a negative, to be honest, unless mm-hmm. I'm... Yeah. We'll but, say no uh, top card, create a rune chant. Uh, I mean, I'd play it in blue. <laughs> yeah. Even then, it's like... It, I don't think it really stands up to cards like Mauvern Skies and things like that. It also block for two blue. I'll give you a next attack go again. But yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, speaking of the Battle Harden that you did play in as well... Well, you didn't play in the Battle Harden. You were, you were <laughs> casting, but of course you played in the, the team event... Um, do just want a, a shout out to I guess also the Azalea that top eight. Congratulations to the Azalea player who I think had a I think they were five out at one point and then finished X two into to top eight. 
Um, I think Fi ended up taking that event, right, Brendan, in the finals against the Azalea. Is that right? No, the Azalea made Germain. the finals against Fi, right? Uh, no, so it was uh, the Jermai and the Fi made it to the finals. Germain. The Azalea went 6-1 through Swiss, ultimately lost to an Olten that was packing additional Earth cards, um, was packing actually eight Earth cards and multiple additional staunch response. Uh, well, actually, I think I only had a couple staunch response. Nevertheless, it was a bad matchup um, for the Azalea. The Azalea absolutely blasted some aggro decks. Beat, and by the way, on the scoreboard, beat Michael Feng on Oldham, Brody Spurlock on, uh, Fine. on uh, Briar. On Briar and then some other just world-class players on aggro decks. It was just starching the top tables. Um, yeah, I think that this is probably the most exciting result out of the weekend. Obviously, Jermai making it to the finals was pretty exciting as well. You saw Jermai beat some of its uh, bad matchups. Obviously, I had to do that to get there. Um, so I think Jermai is more alive than maybe people thought. But Azalea, sort of the breakout deck, that Azalea was on stream, uh, I think, I think four times. Um, so if you think it's a fluke or you think it it was, um, you know, maybe a gem format is way there, nope, you can go watch it. It's on stream. You can see the deck play. I think it's a legitimate deck. If you, if you expect there to be a lot of aggressive decks in the field at Worlds, Azalea could be a potentially fine pick. Your, your hard matchups are, going, are probably going to be Old Him and Jermai. Um, but if old Tim's trend to be more aggressive, it's uh, it's definitely a matchup that you can win. So Azalea, the quote unquote worst hero in the game, the worst deck in the game, the unplayable game, the unplayable deck is the is vindicated. You know the role players are vindicated. Azalea is a real hero. Yeah, I mean you can go and definitely learn from watching those games. There were some um, some great games there. Uh, I want to shout out to 983 Media and the Goliath Gauntlet. You know, speaking of just sort of top level coverage that's available at the moment that you can go and watch, this Goliath Gauntlet series is ongoing. If you don't know what it is, uh, go to 983 Media, check it out. You've got some of the, you know, your your stalwart casters uh, doing this from that you're going to see at the World Championship, uh, plus players that you're going to see at the World Championship and probably on stream battling it out. Brendan, I know your game went up this past weekend. Mine was the the weekend before. Uh, how have you what's your kind of thoughts on this this event like have you enjoyed playing it do you think it's something that we should see in the future yeah it's really cool like it brings a lot of ex- a lot of exposure right the the casting team the production team is really good um they got some cool players to to join the tournament as well i think it just makes people more excited about competitive flesh and blood builds more of a narrative builds more of a story behind the players right um speaking about this goliath gauntlet specifically though uh, yeah, I mean, my favorite matchup was um, was the Briar into Reinar. What were those players again? Isaac Crute and uh, somebody else. But yeah, that oh, game. No spoilers. Yeah, no great, spoilers. Great game. My favorite game. Um, I did unfortunately lose my game to Caleb, who is oh, an absolute all monster. Spoilers. It ha- it has been sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so you're gonna hear a little bleep there when when our when our editor edited that out. So I had a great game against my opponent. <laughs> <laughs> you won't i'm not doing that uh <laughs> playing brendan if you got your the results spoiled for you um do just last want to shout out we have our dynasty spoiler dropping uh, in a few days time when this comes out so tuesday november 1st our spoiler will be releasing and uh, that preview season does run from october 31st to november 2nd before we launch right into worlds we do also have a bit of a giveaway coming up. We're about to hit 5,000 subscribers. Uh, I think we're about 70 or 60 subscribers off. So if you aren't already subbed to the channel, you know, please do us a favor. Go and sub to the channel. Give the the podcast episode a big thumbs up, big like. And uh, we'll be giving away kind of an Arsenal Pass pack. We've got a few goodies and things in there uh, for 5,000 subs. So we'll, we'll, we'll do something post-Worlds for that. 
And lastly, just big thanks to all of our, our Arsenal Pass patrons. Uh, we do have a, another Patreon podcast going up in the next week. So look out for that. Uh, cookout, Brendan. Yeah. Um, command and cookout. Open up the Barbie. Oh, there's a question here, Hayden. Would you dye your hair for 5,000 subscribers? Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. I still want to see you blonde. Uh, as we, as we, uh, I just can't, I can't, I can't not bring this up because we have our, our subscriber target. You know, I took, I took the one for the team. I, uh, I did the blonde hair and I, I just think you'd be really, really handsome. The, the, the problem is, Brendan, is people have heard you for, you know, if you're a long-time Arsenal pass listener, 81 episodes now, we're closing on that 100 mark. You know, we've been with you for over a year at this point. Maybe you're new to the channel, though. Maybe you're new. Maybe you, you haven't seen through Brendan's antics yet. But if you are very familiar with Arsenal pass, you've probably seen the way that Brendan likes to operate with peer pressure. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't I won't sound like in. me at all. Um, yeah, let's get into that command cookout <laughs> question, though. <laughs> Yeah, we've got a great question this week. If you do want to get your questions in, we have had some great questions coming over the past two weeks after our call to action for some Command & Cookout questions, but you can still get your question in and probably get it read out before the end of the year, you know, if we like the question, of course, but, you know, generally we like all the questions we get. You can email them to us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. You can drop them in the comments below. Let us know it's a Command & Cookout question, which we've had a few of. You can DM us on Twitter. Uh, you can drop one into the Arsenal Pass Patreon Discord if you are a patron. This question does come from there this week from Fancy who says, how does belittle minimalism figure into modern flesh and blood and does designing around it as an aggro staple hamper ongoing game design? A follow-up question from Fancy as well. If you think that belittle fetching blue minimalism for pitch is fundamentally good for flesh and blood, how do you sleep at night, Brendan? Well, I mean, if we're going to harken back to the episode with uh, Michael Hamilton, yeah, the value rate on belittle minimalism is pretty good. There are some deck building restrictions that come with us with it, but some some decks uh, seem to build around that um, easier than others. Looking at the Briar deck that won Pro Tour number two, um, do I think it's a modern staple in Flesh and Blood? Yes. Do you think uh, and does designing around it as an aggro staple hamper ongoing game design? Um, I think it will. I, I do think Belittle Minimalism actually might get banned just because it's so different from any other sort of two card interaction in the game and it's it's like math matrix is so far above rate uh if decks could not easily fit it in and they had to make significant sacrifices uh, i would think about you know if you put it in like an olden deck the sacrifice would probably be pretty bad um then maybe you'll see it stick around but yeah i think that's a card that has a sort of has a target on its back and it's just waiting for um a couple decks to to kind of abuse it yeah it's a uh I think, I mean, we've already seen decks abuse it, right? We've, we've seen the winning deck at Pro Tour number two use it to great effect. We've seen it be prevalent through, uh, uh, you know, Chain. We've seen it prior to, of course, Chain hitting Living Legend. We've seen it be prevalent in other deck builds. We've seen it in Viscerate, of course. Um, the rate on it is so high, right? The, the thing that comes into it is like deck building restraints, yeah? So that, that's always the consideration is like, we're, uh, uh, you're going to have above rate cards. Like that is part of Flesh and Blood. But the thing that's going to offset those is, your what you have to dump into them so what are the opportunity costs and one of those for belittle of course is your your deck building restraints of course that also they defend two um this so there's a few things there but the the big thing i do think about belittle minimalism and why i think we why we think we probably haven't there's a couple of things why we haven't seen it just completely decimate the format is because of those restrictions because the card is super above rate but there, there is restrictions and the second is 
um, is not about that, but it's about like why I think it's kind of a good thing for us to have. And I think a lot of aggro decks would struggle without it to play into these ice decks to be able to go and fetch that that blue minizen. Uh, you know, I think even some of the, I guess, prior formats, some of these aggro decks might have struggled without the ability to like push over rate on damage. I think this ability is kind of needed in some way. Um, but at some point, yeah, right. I think you're right, Brendan. At some point, it just gets a bit. Uh, it gets a bit too much, right? Something something might break it at some point. That non-attack action might become even more vital for a particular rune blade, or those resources to dump into a particular action card might be too good, right? So um, that'd be interesting to see. There's a few cards in Flesh and Blood that I think are just incongruent. Uh, Blood Minimalism is one of them. Uh, Oasis Respite is. I know that it hits Kano really hard, and like I complain about it, but Oasis Respite is just like as an instant, just like. It's kind of funny just in the context of like all these zero report defense reactions we have that have additional game design sort of layered on top of them with like, you know, if you look at the cards that Ranger has, it affects, uh, you know, defense reactions being played. We have like command and conquer. So those are like potential punishments of running in your deck. Um, Oasis does have that one cost, but it, it is kind of weird that you're getting like this uh, for five rate off of an instant and sort of dodging those defense reaction limitations. Um, and there's also probably some other cards, you know, honestly, Aether Wildfire might be one of those cards. You can have it. Uh, <laughs> Ragamuffin's Hat, probably one of those cards as well. The fact that it lets you opt and net resources, like it's an equipment, so it's a bit different, but yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. some cards that are Scalata probably, probably wants to have a word with you about overrate effects. Yeah. Scalata. <laughs> I'm yeah. Scalata definitely incongruent. I think that that would probably, probably land in the category of incongruent, but prop is Maybe one of my my favorite cards to ever play with um, and brew with. Like, I enjoyed that deck. Mm-hmm. Hate me if you want. <laughs> I mean, Oasis is another that has deck building restraints, right? Like, it's an instant. It doesn't defend. It's red. Like, there is there is some. I mean, obviously, it's red. That's the that's the above rate you're talking about. But there is restrictions. So I, I'm really interested to see where design goes in the future with some of these above rate cards. I think they've done a pretty good job so far of balancing them. Like, a lot of the cards we've seen banned in in Flesh and Blood so far are equipment cards, right? Because they're the cards that are the hard, probably the hardest to balance, right? They're the ones that always start in place. They're always accessible. Whereas these above rate cards aren't always accessible and they, they do have some there's some deck burning restraints. So um, it'd be interesting to see where we go next. In terms of your other question, Fancy, how do I sleep at night? I mean, it sounds like someone who plays some ice builds maybe and is a bit upset about but little into blue minimalism to pay for some effects, but it's all right. You'll be okay. All right. With that, uh, I mean, I, I remember I put out a, a poll on Twitter a couple months ago, and this is actually for Prunner Fielder 2. I said over or under, you know, like what's the timeline for Belittle Minimalism getting banned? Um, I actually am surprised that it's made it this far, but we shall see. What was as, the winning? Uh, the winning was under, was uh, before Pro Tour number two, I think. Before? before. Pro, yeah, before mm, Pro Tour mm. number two. Yeah, it lives on. I want to find that poll. I want to see if I can find that poll on your Twitter and see what I voted for. I wonder if that's... I'm going to try and look that up after the pod. Yeah, that... Yeah, just a small anecdote that reminds me that Zach Bunn, every time I have a bad take, he uses this, like, Twitter functionality that oh, will remind yes. him on the date <laughs> to come and roast me for the, the bad take. I wonder if we can collate those into a, a book, a picture book for okay. everyone to read. All right. I'm sure people would love that. Let's get into that main topic. <laughs> Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so as I said at the top of the show, we back at the start of the year, December, January, we did a Patreon podcast about linear versus non-linear decks and kind of the domination of these linear decks. And you can see examples of this throughout Flesh and Blood of these decks that have one kind of singular 
play style in mind. One thing they want to repetitively, repeatedly do or exploit, you know, uh, Control Dash and Crucible of War, Ninja Turtle and Welcome to Wraith, uh, Ira in the early Blitz meta, you know, uh, Kadachi, Kadachi Threat, Chain and Monarch with that just repetitive, just shackle, go again, banish, banish, banish. Uh, Lightning Briar, of course, just zero cost, zero, Plunder Run, zero cost, zero cost, maybe Sword or another zero cost. Fatigue, Ultim, and Blitz we saw recently. Uh, Fire Combo, you know, even with just all these head jabs and uh, Mask of Pouncing Links plus Stubby Hammers before the banner Stubby Hammers. So we've, we've seen these decks do very, very well and, and dominate the game. And at the time when we recorded this podcast originally, uh, the, the original vision of this podcast is to a certain degree, we were in a, a point where linear decks were definitely dominating. But Brendan, I think that's shifted a little bit. And we talked to Michael Hamilton last week on the pod about this idea of value equ- equation and flesh and blood and, and how to get above rate and, and trade cards. And the format has kind of shifted a little bit, right? Obviously with Icelander, uh, these newer builds of Ultim coming to the front. So before we get into talking about, I guess, this kind of idea of, you know, the philosophy of deck building and, and how to have some of these these better deck builds in flesh and blood right now based on this kind of concept, why don't we talk a little bit about linear decks and you know, why these have dominated. But first of all, like, wh- what is a linear deck, Brendan? Yeah, linear deck is a, some, is a deck that tries to do, uh, execute its game plan every single game, uh, a consistent game plan. So if you think about Briar, like let's think about Chiro, Chiro Briar. Chiro Briar, every single game is going to be trying to play plunder rounds out of the arsenal, uh, have long combat chains, stack embodiments, block occasionally and relevant hit triggers come across, and just be the aggressor, right? There's pretty much no point in the game where Chiro Briar would not be the aggressor if, it was, if, if there was, the that deck was losing. So it's decks that are executing a single game plan. They don't deviate. They're not dynamic, right? They're usually not reacting to the opponent at all. Um, I think that that really kind of, that describes linear decks in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, I mean, they, they could be reacting to the opponent, but that would be their only strategy, right? So you could look at, you could say, um, maybe in, in terms of control dash, right? Like the, the game plan there is set up your items block out your damage, and then just pew-pew to victory, right? Like, that is that is the plan every single game. Uh, defensive ultimate decks at, at one point was just like, okay, fatigue my opponent, you know? Like, block everything out, fatigue my opponent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can be, I guess, reactionary in nature, but it's not to the point of that you're fluxing, right? I think it's really important. So, right? Like, I think that would be good, the word. It's not that, di- yeah. Dynamic as in, like, your, your game plan might switch based off what your opponent is doing. Like, generally, you're just executing the same glam the same game plan regardless of what the opponent presents to you would you and you know we've had these decks probably draw the the ire of the community probably the most in terms of you know the the discourse and cards being called for bans and uh, maybe often unpleasant to play against do you think that these decks these linear decks in the past have found success because they're easy to play they have really clear game, game plans um yes and no like i i do think that they are easier to play uh definitely but i also think that they were more powerful for a long long time actually up until proto number two to be honest uh starting in monarch uh we went through uh, over a year <laughs> of just linear decks being extremely dominant and mid-range decks or sort of i don't know what you would call control decks so but control decks that are not fatigue decks just not seeing like any play right it was either you know hardcore fatigue or these super aggressive um super aggressive decks I, honestly and i want to i want to pull back to you know we recorded that patreon pod back in december um at that time i was actually uh, I was actually wondering if we would ever get out of that 
that loop. It, it did seem like we might never. It, it felt like those cards, like the aggressive cards were too powerful. Um, and you were either playing the best aggro deck or you were trying to fatigue it, basically. Yeah. There's, um, I want to talk about some of the other the reasons why I think these, and we've discussed this before, I think, as ourselves, but you know, to put it out there, some of the reasons that these linear decks like were finding success and what has made them so powerful. Uh, you did you did say like from Monarch, I, I think even pre Monarch, right? Like Crucible. Uh, I mean, obviously, maybe you you don't <laughs> identify the game as being as popular then, right? So you could say maybe yes, maybe no. But yeah, like you say, there was a straight year of just like aggressive deck after aggressive deck that just kind of dominated the format with one clear singular plan in mind. Um, but th- like, there's other things as well, and it'd be interesting to to discuss some of these because I want to know whether you think some of these translate to the decks we see now, even if they're less linear than what we've seen. Um, were these reasons? why linear decks and are they only relevant for linear decks or do they kind of translate to what we see now so i guess one at the top of my list is like room for error some of these more linear decks felt like you had a bit more margin for error because cards are replacement level your game plan didn't change much turn to turn and the onus was on your opponent a lot of the time you know you're maybe you missequence something and you miss one or two damage but for the most part you weren't getting punished too badly by sort of small mistakes whereas if your opponent misblocks a card lets you draw a card off a plunder run for example or you know doesn't play their snag at the right time against chain etc they they could get severely punished for it right so it reminds me of a conversation i had this weekend actually where i was at uh i was having dinner with uh, michael fang yuanji and yongji and they were they were debating how many mistakes an Icelander could make in a game and get away with it. Started at one, went to zero, and then everybody sort of decided that it was actually negative one. Um, you know, the way to win games is Icelander. Your opponent. your opponent needs to make a, a mistake at some point in the game. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, so that that I think we'll come back to when we talk about maybe this current format. Uh, because it felt, you know, these decks, oh, okay, I, I miss a resource on my chamber or whatever. Like, these small resources... To me, they never felt like game losing, but they did add up eventually, right? But unless you're in a really tight game, so like a Lightning Briar Mirror, like one or two mistakes could could probably cost you the game, right? I think we found that in Lightning Lightning Briar Mirrors, Cheerio Briar Mirrors, whatever you want to call the deck. Um, but also, I guess they're maybe less obvious as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that generally, uh, when you're playing one of these linear decks, yes, there is a, a larger like a uh, sort of margin for error, right? You can get away with more. Um, your deck is sort of just fundamentally powerful at executing a, like a basic line, right? Whether it's an aggro deck, right? This is trying to push as much damage as possible or it's a defensive deck, right? Where you're just blocking out with your sort of your entire hand and just trying to get the, at the most value you possibly can. Uh, you possibly can. I think at the highest level, um, any you know, highest level of competitive flesh and blood, sort of like any deck you're, you're usually going to get punished for mistakes and there is a lower margin for error if if at all uh but in general linear decks uh do allow for uh maybe less some uh, less than ideal play sometimes and you can still end up winning the game yeah a few, few more stakes so, some other reasons why a lot of these linear decks found such, such success replacement level uh the homogenous the homogenous nature of cards I think played into it a lot you can point to lightning briar with the zero for four cost you know so many cards are replacement level it often didn't matter which combination of those cards you had in your hand uh, outside of maybe plunder run or you know a non-attack action and an attack action uh, you can point to dash cards that block three in a blue you know outside of your your items and chambers um ice blues in defensive ultim builds that were kind of the rage back at the start of of uh, that meta sideboarding and setting up with them seems to be a bit easier because your game plan never really fluxes or changes you're sort of just plugging and playing cards 
depending on matchup a lot of the time. Uh, and the game plans tend to be a bit clearer because they're not shifting and changing as the game goes along like they might with non-linear decks. Brendan, any kind of thoughts on those three things and, and why they pertain to linear decks so much? Yeah, I mean, just some examples of some linear decks I've played in the past that basically, I mean, I think of Tallbriar when I played that in the Battle Hard in Cincinnati, and it did not have a sideboard. I think of Kano. Uh, I think Kano is actually more of a combo deck. It is a bit, it's dynamic in its game plan, but when it comes to sideboarding, there is no sideboard. <laughs> it just runs the 60 cards and it tries to do the same thing every single game. Uh, how it gets there can get a bit convoluted, but um, definitely linear in the sense that you kill your opponent via Aether Wildfire. Uh, and there effectively is no sideboard. Um, but yeah, I mean, a non-linear deck uh, that I would look back towards is like actually in Crucible. Um, like that dash deck that would, did have a transformational sideboard was a was sort of a mid-range deck, but then also a control deck to deal with the Guardians. Yeah, that's a good point. So we saw Control Dash sort of start that format off, and we've seen that come back a bit recently. Jacob Barr in the top eight of US Nationals. But uh, probably in between those two times, we've seen more dynamic uh, dash decks you know these these like you say they have situational cyber plans am i an aggro deck that starts with tickler pounder for instance like we saw at the, at the pt or do i switch to items into guardians and play a more defensive build or am i somewhere in between so not only is my my deck dynamic but actually my game plans are dynamic and that's two very important things to change out i think because you use kano as an example maybe my game plans not that uh not that dynamic but my lines of play are dynamic there's i think there's a you can draw some lines between what your deck is what your uh game plans are and what your actual lines are during a game there's three kind of ways you can look at linearity i think um generally uh, rune blades have probably been targeted as the ones that are most linear because it's like Okay, my my deck is pretty linear. My game plan is, is always to go, uh, you know, to, to push damage and threaten with Rosetta Thorn. And my 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 lines are the same. Non-attack action, attack action, weapon, right? So you could say that maybe those are the examples of some of the most linear decks. Uh, format, depending, right? Um, nine mob, nine trail, baby. <laughs> what a deck. Uh, we kind of ended a little bit on this originally by just saying, were these decks a problem for the game? And I think at the time we said that they were causing some issues, I think, in terms of just how much we'd seen of them. You know, I think, like you've said before, it was a year straight we'd seen of these aggressive linear decks, and we were questioning ourselves about when do we see the end of this? When do we see the rise of non-linear decks? We also propositioned, I think, at the time that maybe non-linear decks exist and the the player base is adapting and evolving with, you know, maybe we're, we're waiting for these players to find these and be able to execute on these with lower mistakes to take them to the top. Yeah, I would. So the way I would sort of expand on and describe that period of time, um, and I would, that time does lead up to P2 number two, is you had aggressive decks and defensive decks. And when it came to aggressive decks, you were generally playing the most aggressive deck, the most consistent, most powerful deck, or you were just making a mistake. Like there was no reason to play the second most powerful aggro deck it was just there was just a, a best deck right and then the way to combat that strategy was just to try to like fatigue and run people out of cards um and yeah that that went on for quite a long time <laughs> uh and i think we've we've seen a departure from that right like nowadays there's there's many different many different sort of decks available to you there's you can play mid-range decks we saw azalea you know recently top eight that that's absolutely a mid-range deck it, it runs a lot of non-attack actions and pumps but the reason that deck is being successful at all is because it's running zero four defense reactions it's actually getting value like azalea plays fundamentally under rate right so you can't just 
just mm-hmm. if you just play Azalea cards, you're always going to be so low on value that you have to get these just ridiculous on hit triggers in a great sequence of, in like a very uh, condensed sequence of time to blow out your opponent. But if you also play these defense reactions, you use your four in your opponent and getting a sort of relatively close amount of value to them on turn cycle to turn cycle. Yes, now your now your on hit triggers are sort of complementary to that game plan already. Uh, the other decks that sort of exemplify this are things like Reinar, right? Like Reiner is very much, very much a mid-range deck, right? It's it, it attacks on multiple fronts. It has uh, evasion via intimidate. It has cards like barraging beatdown, which you can play to strip your your opponent's entire hand, or you can play one and then club and basically ask your opponent to block with two cards or take a major value hit by um, letting that sort of pump resolve. Uh, just some examples on my end here. Yeah, well, let's talk about the. The shift. I mean, obviously, you just explained what what a dynamic deck is, what a non-linear deck is. Um, you know, it's the flexing of game plans, like you say. It's it's the opposite of what we just talked about in terms of game plan, uh, deck build, and lines of play. All three of those can be dynamic in some way, shape, or form. And some of the decks that you see are super dynamic in every single way. You know, the the deck itself can flux and change. The the cards can impact exactly how the deck plays from one game to another, as well as the lines of play. Like you just, I think. Ryan is a great example, you know, in which way the cards become more modal, I would say, is one of the things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if, okay, let's take let's take the Lightning Briar deck, for example, right? A 0 for 4 attack, like a Lightning Surge from Arsenal or, you know, an Entwine Lightning fusing a, a Lightning card, that card is so one-dimensional in so many ways. Like, if you're not attacking with that card, you're losing so much value on that card. On the flip side of that, a card like Barrage and Beatdown can be modal in so many different ways. It can block for three. It can be used to like you say, provide evasion to take your opponent's full hand as part of uh, a combination with other cards, or it can be used to present a value trade. Like that is quite a stark, stark contrast, right? Those two cards there. Yep. Um, like I think that, like you said with the Briar deck, it's your cards are, they're just fundamentally much more powerful at attacking. So when you're presented with an option to block, like unless you have a ridiculous amount of embodiments, which is how it was back then, but not anymore. Like it's not a choice. It's, 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 it's literally not a choice. Like, it's just a losing play every single time unless you're going to die or your opponent is forcing you to block because um, the command and conquer that hits your arsenal actually take away more value. So you're just constantly doing this EV equation on the value of your hand, but it's so ridiculously skewed towards actually attacking with those cards that you're actually not making too much of a decision when it comes to, should I block with this card? Should I attack with this card? Should I pitch this card? Because, you know, I mean, the Lightning Briar deck, you're not pitching any of the cards. <laughs> yeah, so... I- I want to talk about and and come off what we did last week with Michael and him coming onto the show and, and let's use it through the framing of Icelander, I think, and talk about the rise of these these non-linear decks to a degree. I think in the past we've seen some really, really dynamic and non-linear decks. You know, you use the, the Reinar example. I think that's a good one you can stick to. You could use uh, Bravo decks in that situation as well of, of how they're using their, uh, their cards, whether it be defensively, whether it's to pitch into the hero ability, whether it's to actually attack with. Now, with this Icelander deck, and, and Michael talked a bit about this last week, right? I think that shift is is less so. It's kind of somewhere in between because you have a card like Wounded Bull, right? Like, that card is an offensive card. It's not good on defense, yeah? It's a it's a two-block red, but on offense with two-card value, that, that represents more value. But it doesn't use your whole hand to do so, whereas you might find with other sort of linear strategies, you know, because you're pairing it with cards that block for three, you're pairing it with disruption, you're pairing it with with other elements of... 
so you're pairing a linear element with some non-linear elements, you know, like, uh, am I playing this channel like Frigid or am I defending with it, for example? Yeah, so Icelander has access to some of the most premium disruption in the game um, and at instant speed as well. Icelander is also not like Kano, where Kano's like punished drastically for putting, uh, diluting the uh, the deck between uh, attack actions and non-attack actions. Like Kano's hero ability is effectively like becomes uh, very high risk or turned off, right? Like non-existent. Icelander is not, does not have this deck building limitation. Icelander's ability lets you play these sort of uh, non-tech actions that usually take your action point at instant speeds, you get an even higher rate on them. And that's like, that's what you want to be doing, right? Because that is fundamentally unfair. And then if you look at the cards that you could be playing over Wounded Bolt, um, like a card that was included before was something like Red Aether Ice Vein. So Red Aether Ice Vein is pitch a blue, coming for four, wand for two. So that's... Aether Hail. Aether yeah, Hail. sorry, Aether, Aether Hail. So that's, um, yeah. that's, that's two cards for six. Wounded Bolt is two cards for eight. So it's just fundamentally better on the math. Uh, some people might argue that because the evasion of arcane damage is relevant, but what you find in these games and why that deck has been successful is that generally it's not, right? You just want to be presenting as yeah. much damage as possible because your opponent is drawing a finite amount of cards and resources to interact with you. And by presenting damage, you're actually taking cards away from their hand. And it's like a form of evasion as you go onto their turn and now attack them because they don't have those cards. They don't have the resources to actually deal with the arcane damage that comes on their turn as well. So like, that's, that's how it worked with Icelander is just like, there was this sort of suite of wizard cards that you could play and you could play them in your main phase and they would be arcane damage. Yes. And they would work with your wand, but they're just literally less value than the, um, than the wounded bulls or the Fendal's fighting spirits. Yeah. Let's not get it wrong. The Icelander deck was always, you know, one of these dynamic non-linear decks that played on the opponent's turn sometimes, sometimes it played its own turn, sometimes it wanted to deal arcane sometimes damage. Sometimes it combo, it to... sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Right? Like, you just have the, the, like, if you play Icelander in Blitz, you see this, right? Like, that is such a mid-range deck, but then you run into an Ultim who decides to, he's like, oh, I'm going to try to play Sigil Solace, Oasis or Spy, like all this baloney sandwich. You're like, okay, well, just as a, as as a result of me having blue block threes that fuse some of my cards, they actually combo you and kill you inevitably. I have like a deterministic win against you. Like it's it's the deck can totally shift its game plan to deal with the opponent trying to do something sort of cheesy, like fatigue you. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um the so I was just thinking about uh, when you get passionate about wizard, you know, I think it really, really seeps through into the podcast. Um, the, the but not the only linear, not the only sort of dynamic non-linear deck that's had success this past season. You know, you look at the the likes of Reiner winning Malaysian Nationals. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, these, I guess, these newer Israelists that play in you know a little bit less uh, linear than they had in the past. Uh, you know, the Ultims and the way that they play flex between being you know these more defensive decks to more aggressive decks, the use of stalagmite, et cetera, that we've seen dynamic and more non-linear decks start to to grow in this last meta. So before we get into kind of like the takeaways, I think, and how deck building might progress moving forward and, and like what, you know, what you can take away from this, what we can take away from this, I want to ask a few questions, Brendan, to you, and we can discuss this about why we're seeing the rise of these dynamic and non-linear decks and the, the continued success over you know, linear decks, not saying that we've shifted completely away from these linear decks and dynamic decks are, you know, where we're at, but we have seen quite a bit of a shift. Um, so, a few questions. Do you think the, the reason for this is down to the players getting better at the game and the better players at this, at Flesh and Blood, being able to leverage dynamic decks, reduce their mistakes to re- enhance, basically, the, the raw power of these dynamic decks? 
Okay, so how this relates to Icelander is... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> wizard, 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 yeah. Wizard. Um, I actually, no. I think that a lot of it is a result of game design, and that game design is a result of Prism rotating out. So when Prism rotated out, it paved the way for a lot of these decks that uh, could interact in sort of a nonlinear way, whether it be Icelander or Reinar. Uh, you know, Reiner's more of a meta call, so it was Azalea, but it, it allowed them the space to actually compete in a tournament, right? Where a lot of these decks, you know, whether it was Old Time or Icelander, had like auto losses into this prism, uh, this prism matchup, which competed on sort of like a completely different vector than any other deck. Um, and it was very polarizing, right? There was this kind of rock, paper, scissors ish. Um, so as that faded out, I, I remember we were actually quite worried. It was like, okay, is this going to be like a mono Old Time, mono fatigue format? Turns out it's not because decks like Icelander. Uh, index with evasion actually came back into the format, which is perfect because that's flesh and blood is actually designed for that, right? Like some of these heroes are designed to uh, target these kind of formats where there might be more defensive decks or more aggressive decks. Um, and Prism, what we thought was actually keeping Ultima away, was actually probably keeping the format uh, uh, from evolving, right? So as that rotated, I think that that mm-hmm. has that's what's led to nonlinear decks being um, able to compete in this meta. I don't necessarily think it's uh, attributed to players kind of getting better uh or anything like that interesting i I think it i think it somewhat is like i agree with you on all those points about game design i think you you hit it kind of on the head you know in in terms of i actually have a follow-up question to that but you know prison rotating out and and icelander coming into the format with with uprising um i would argue there's a little bit of of the the player edge and and just players growing this game because i think you actually made a point that exemplifies that you talked about you know the conversation you had with uh, with the guys at dinner the other night in terms of needing to make negative one mistake. That's a lot less than one or two mistakes. And I think players just realizing, getting reps in, getting more familiar with this game, it's not even a case of just like better players coming into the game. It's actually a, play, a, a fact for me of players just getting more experience in the game and understanding, you know, heuristics, as, as Brendan would say, and, and when to avoid these pretty sort of simple or easy to make mistakes just being pushed out of the game by some of the top players i think is at least some of a factor if i had to give it a weighting i mean obviously i don't think it's like 50 50 or anything to you know to that degree but i do think it has some impact on on that because mistakes do make it a lot harder to have success with these mm-hmm. dynamic decks well i think that you know practice makes perfect and people are ridiculously more like uh, disproportionately more practice than they ever have been in the history of flesh For and sure. blood because of Dalajar. So now people don't, you don't have people to just, yeah, yeah. Degeneracy as well. It's like people, it's obviously it happens. You'll, you'll see it, but it's becoming less and less common that someone's just going to make a mistake, like a blatant mistake. Like it's, it's objectively incorrect because that they just missed a line or something or they're like mm. it's something obvious, right. That you would, that, you just get from practicing and pattern recognition. Like those things are less common. It makes games feel a lot harder, which I think we've all attributed to as we played these competitive events uh, as time has gone on. Um, but yeah, the player base is getting much better. And I think that what leads to that, what leads to making less mistakes is fundamentally just way more practice, like way more games of flesh and blood are being played. Yep. On the, the theme of game design and, and new sets, of course, we. You could probably point to Monarch and Tales of Aria being two of the most powerful sets we've had in this game so far. I mean, you look at the heroes that have come out of that and and some of the game design. What do you think in terms of sort of some of the discussion that, and maybe I'm making this up, maybe this is my discussion, but Uprising being a bit of a step back in power and allowing for these dynamic decks to, so, you you know, not only the kind of thing with Prism rotating out, Chain, etc., very powerful decks that, you know, 
inhibited some of this dynamic deck building and dynamic play, but also potentially, you know, a new set coming out that is a bit of a step back from where we've been in the past in terms of power level. Yeah, so it's interesting whether it's from the set specifically or if it's a result of, you know, Prism rotating out, the card pool being deeper, et cetera, et cetera. It could be a lot more. Uh, 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 the question could be a lot deeper, but I would say that, you know, if we look towards Uprising, all three heroes uh, that came out in Uprising are some of the best heroes in the game. They're consistently represented in the top eight of the current class constructed meta. Um, but the sets don't, the Uprising as a set does not feel nearly as power creepy as Monarch or Tales of Aria. I mean, but the thing is, is like those sets felt so powerful because of like very, like usually an individual hero. Like I think that Chain effectively utilizing this sort of crazy amount of card advantage every single turn for this uh somewhat like the cost of doing that which is the blood debt in your life like it's not worth the card the card is way that was more, a cost yeah yeah exactly the card is way <laughs> more valuable um which was yeah. the exact issue with the card like what chain was model off which which was a card magic called necropotence um and then we have old him which is sort of coming to its own now wasn't as much as good back then but old him just has like Throne of Brutality's ability kind of printed on the hero where you get to block two for free and ice react and put the it's just fundamentally very good and of course Crown of Seeds is I think a, a power crept card at that um, do I think that the we're toning back in power I don't think it, I think it's unintentional I think that Everfest was Everfest is is more interesting actually to me because I think Everfest was was a was a tone back in power level for yeah, like yeah, for mo- no, but I'm saying for most heroes. Then there were just like some outliers, like Revel and Rudeblood, Miraging Metamorph, Starvo. Like there was a lot of bad cards in Everfest, and then there was just some baloney sandwich that has just absolutely terrorized the game. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think they're 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 trying to tone back design to stop this sort of power creep. I still think that, or at least statistically, I think that every new set that has come out, those heroes have kind of just been the best heroes, except for you know like. Lexi, maybe. But, you know, one hero from that set has been pretty dominant. Interesting. Yeah, I, I feel kind of pretty opposite to that, actually. I feel, from from my perspective, like Uprising, it, to me, it feels like an intentional kind of going back to some roots of um, really classic flesh and blood game design in terms of what the repetitive power output is. And it, it feels like the synergistic nature of the the set is a little bit lower but i mean of course it's just perspective right and in terms of what we see and you know i think time will tell whether it's intentional or not as we get further down the line we've got you know we've got dynasty to come soon which um i i always feel that stuff you talked about you know you pointed to everfest i feel like supplemental sense is so much harder to gauge because they don't um they don't introduce necessarily the same amount of mechanics and and play space you know they're, they're but more plug and play than say a, a core a base set like a uprising or monarch etc yeah, yeah yeah for sure and I, I think i could definitely see it from your point of view too um in terms of the game design and maybe turning back a little bit from like monarch and tales of aria uh but yeah i'm actually i'm particularly see. interested in, Di- in dynasty like i think dynasty yeah. is going to tell us a lot because crucible of war is like a very well-rounded set in my opinion i could have sort of nostalgic eyes for it but it felt well-rounded like a lot of the cards felt very intentionally designed. A lot of the heroes felt like they got specific tools to get other game plans. And we had Everfest where there was some, like I said, ridiculous cards. And then other classes and heroes just got absolutely left out to dry. And we got all the potions and stuff. Like, it was a funny set. Look, I don't want to upset anyone, but let's put it out there pretty plain and, plain and simple. Everfest, uh, I think, particularly 
not a very good set. Probably the worst set in Flesh and Blood so far. I agree. Um, <laughs> but I was someone was actually talking to me about this this weekend. Sorry, anecdote and a bit of a diversion that they think like Everfest is a good set to sit on because a few of the cards in that set won't be reprinted because they they probably won't do unlimited forever fest and they're like the most freaking powerful cards that have like ever been printed this like revel and rune just crazy miraging metamorph like why does that even make sense like it's an upside if you pop it it's crazy <laughs> if you're playing prison but is zero for four to be fair yeah, but it's just a little synergistic <laughs> with the the viscerai and then this. I know it, uh, it's supporting cards, right? Like blood cheese, galata, viscerai's ability, like all this. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, that's how that's how one and only finance bro corner for yeah. probably about ten episodes. Yeah. <laughs> that's all you get from us. That's the taster. Um, okay, I want to round out some of these these questions. Is so two two more for you. Uh, harder to play against dynamic decks. Do you think that's been a, a something you can contribute to the rise of these dynamic decks? that they're harder to play against yeah ah going back to this negative one mistake right yeah very much very much depends i think it depends on the player right uh like some players handling those kind of decks it can get really tough because it's hard to it's hard to sort of i don't know they they have a lot of agency of their game plan and they're reacting to you and it's dynamic and it it's changing based off what you're doing and you have to sort of keep up with that and be on the same level if you want to compete or you quickly just kind of get uh overshadowed right um in general i do find it a lot easier to play against those kind of decks than sort of the linear aggressive decks those decks are you know they're fundamentally frustrating to play against sometimes like okay tunic art of war hit me for 30 you're like that there wasn't really much that went into that. It's just like, that's kind of how the cards came. And I, as a player, like if I feel like I had no agency over stopping that, it does feel harder, like harder for me to play against. Cause like, there's nothing I can do. It just happens. It's like, dang it. Harder to play against or harder to beat? Harder to beat. Harder to beat. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, cause in th- my side is my, my point would be, you know, you've, if you want to play against the dynamic deck and I think this is at least somewhat a contributor, You've really got to be able to play both sides of the table, and if you the less and less you're able to play both sides of the table, the more and more advantage your opponent gains. Because, you know, let's use an example. Uh, I send a passes to you with a card and arsenal, four cards in hand. You play your first uh, card for the turn. What's your opponent going to do? You, you know, you don't know. I mean, you can have an idea based on how much you're playing the opposite side of the table. Okay, they fuse something with Aether Ice Vein. I remember what that card is. They have played X amount of cards so far. Uh, you know, I haven't seen a hypothermia. You know, there's so many different things that could happen. Okay, how do I want to play around that? What's the card that could help me enable that? What am I most worried about? Like, if you just play out your game plan into a dynamic, dynamic deck, you can often run into some trouble, especially dynamic decks that have disruption elements. But you could even use something like, you know, a dynamic deck like like Rhinara's example. It's just, you know, <laughs> why not? Uh, you talked about Barrage and Beatdown earlier. Like, how is your opponent going to use Barrage and Beatdowns on their turn? The, like, the less you have information about that, the the more you can get punished by it, I think. So it's... um. I got. Yeah, an, I, I don't think it's the be all and end all. But. I got an example for you. So you're playing Briar, right? You need to get out Chain of Mount Heroic and put as many attack actions on that combat chain as possible. You're playing mm-hmm. against a Guardian player. The Guardian player hits you with an uh, a hammer at some point in the game, and you know you like look at your armor, you look at your grasp. There's maybe a Frosty on it. You're like value block, right? Block with my grasp. Block with my Crown of Providence. Avoid that frostbite. Get my value while I can. Okay. Well, you play your channel on heroic. Your guardian opponent's been sitting on their arsenal for a while. Boom. Choke slam. Oh, can you throw your armor in front of it and avoid the hit trigger and play out your big channel on heroic turn? 
Nope. Now you have to dump your hand and your Shannon Mount Hardwick is much less effective. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this a lot. Same thing with Azalea. There's actually a match with Brody against the Azalea player. I talked with him about the play uh, beforehand. There was a vanilla remorseless that came through. He blocked with this grass with the Arc Knight and a card from hand to fully block it out. Uh, probably a mistake, right? Because there's there's one card that really messes you up as Briar in that deck that you absolutely need to save your armor for, especially when the art, when the arrow has dominate. And that's uh, actually I have the card sitting on my table. That's this card. That's Red in the Ledger. Um, so yeah, <laughs> immediately punished for for that. But yeah, yeah, it, that I, for me, like uh, that's kind of an example that I would use. Yeah, it, um, I I agree though. Like a lot of these powerful linear strategies in the past have been frustrated, and we've seen that being directed at by the community in terms of you know these are not necessarily fun play experiences, and and dynamic decks I think lead to more fun play experiences in general. Uh, but I don't, yeah, I think that can often be harder to play against, and, and that can I think that is giving somewhat of an edge to these decks for the moment. We'll we'll see how that translates. I mean, I think about a deck like Dorinthia in the past as well. Like in the past, that deck lost a lot of its power because everyone knew how how to play into it. You know, and then we've cycled through to a point where probably not a lot of people know how to play against theory again. So, uh, but I'm sure we'll go we'll go back the other way. What about? Um, I guess probably probably last thing would be the. Do you think a lot of the cards that we've seen printed recently, say Everfest, say Uprising, do you actually think that some of these cards potentially, the more powerful cards we've seen from the set, are better in dynamic decks than in linear decks? You know, a, a card that I guess it's not necessarily recent, but. Um, channel like Frigid, Hypothermia and Icelander, for example. Um, in, in the Guardian side, there's, there's probably some good examples I can't think of right now. Yeah, like Hypothermia is a really good example. Um, like, <laughs> there's there's times at which you play that, and it uh, the value that you can get off that card is drast- drastically changes based on what your opponent's doing, right? If they play a Channel Mount Heroic, I'm sorry, you keep using that example, and you play Hypothermia, it's very good for you. If they, you know, have a two-card hand and they're coming in for Scar for Scar and maybe a Rosetta Thorn off Tunic and you Hypothermia, yeah, it's not bad, but you, you know, you're not going to get that massive, like, plus six, plus nine value you could by stopping a CMH turn with that card. Um, so, yeah. What's the most powerful card in Uprising? Uh, Crown of Providence. The best card. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you said that. That card in itself is, is, a, is a pretty dynamic card, right? Like it's, you know, even the, the best card out of Uprising, which arguably, and it's an equipment, it, that in itself is not, a, is not a linear card. It's quite dynamic. So, well, yeah, because yeah, you can think, fix your hand, right? Like that's, that's, exactly. that's the main thing is like, uh, yeah, it's, it's linear if you use it to block a command and conquer every time and recycle your arsenal into your hand. But the fact that you can fish for blues or fish for reds, it like, I mean, that card is so good, Hayden. <laughs> yeah and of course like hypothermia could be not it's not necessarily it's in itself a dynamic card you know that could be used in linear strategies that just want to prevent your opponent ever playing the game but you know what i guess my point is that we're seeing some of these cards recently work really well in in dynamic decks uh and that's not to say that we haven't seen strength for linear based strategies you know you look at fi and obviously that hero being printed but you know we've seen some really strong zero for fours we've seen some you know cards like lava burst these above rate cards so like it's not like these decks haven't got it i'm i guess my point is that you know, I think some of the cards that we've seen printed recently have enabled and helped the the dynamic decks grow alongside all the other things we just talked about. So um, I guess the last thing that I really want to go over, Brendan, is kind of the so what. Like how to utilize this info and, and where do we go from here when it comes to deck building? Of course, like I say, last week, Michael Hamilton talked a little bit, a lot about this value equation and from a play perspective and a deck building perspective. And, and that tends to line up it can line up into, I'd say, traditionally more linear strategies, but it can also line up into non non-linear strategies like we like we saw. So, you know, value equation in the past, you could say, well, you know, Tarek showed this with the Lightning Bride deck, just 
always be above rate on your on your on each card by one um, in a linear version. Michael using this with a card like Wounded Ball, Finders Fighting Spirit uh, in a non-linear shell. But what's the kind of like so what? Like what are some tips you have right now, Brendan? Let's say uh, World Championships happens, Uprising. Uh, sorry, Dynasty comes out. We've got a new set. How would you approach deck building mm. right now? <laughs> so. I think that this is a funny answer for me, but I, I think that the value, the value oriented way of looking at flesh and blood and uh, just like fundamentally uh, sort of dissecting every card based off its sort of quantity of math matrix and how much value you can get a turn cycle is the best way to deck build in flesh and blood. Is it the end all be all? No, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, like, like the Kano combo deck is some, is a deck that I, I don't think fits that kind of fits that equation at all. And it's still a very powerful deck. Um, but I know from spending time with you know the likes of Michael Hamilton and Michael Fang in person and really hearing them dive into this topic, and especially when it comes to limited set, I know you mentioned Dynasty. It's actually really changed the way I look at Flesh and Blood and the way I play I play Flesh and Blood, and I feel like I've gotten much, much, much better. Like I said, it's not the end-all be-all. I still think that you can you absolutely deck build from the sort of synergistic uh, perspective, you know, looking for specific broken cards, building around them, or looking for combos, like that's mm-hmm. great. Uh, but I think you should always start with value. Um, and if you do, you're going to shortcut so many potential mistakes that you could be making in deck building. Yeah, so it's so funny because this idea of, I guess, uh, you know, what what do you call it? Uh, the math matrix or whatever you like to call it. Like the, I just call it the value equation because that's literally what it is. That is what like flesh and blood is predicated on. And, and I think back to playing Welcome to Wraith Limited yeah. or playing Welcome to Wraith, Arcane Rising, Classic Constructed, like that's literally what the game was. So it's so funny to think about it kind of coming around now and being almost like somewhat of a a, a new concept in a, in a way, or at least a revived concept. But Absolutely. And you know what's funny is that like it actually dumb, it dumbs the game down. The game down. I'm not saying in a bad way, but like you, simplifies can, it. you can learn so much and you can get so far just by looking at like the sheer numbers on cards, it's freaking incredible. But like you said, like an anecdotal kind of story from Welcome to Wraith, I remember I was uh, playing the 2019 Austin Calling, uh, which was Welcome to Wraith Limited. And after the tournament, we were, we were we had dinner with James White and he was talking about how good Raging Onslaught Blue was. And I was like, dude, that card sucks. And he was like, it blocks for three and it comes from, it's like, it has no text. He's like, it blocks for three and it's a blue. It's all you want. And a text of five. It made no sense to me at the time. I was like, dude, that card sucks. It doesn't say strip five card. It doesn't say pummel on it or something like that. Um, but he's hundred percent right. Like you go draft some of these sets now. Um, and even uprising, like you see bowling or drafted and uprising. It's so disgusting. Like, it's so much harder to dude. It's so much harder to play against than the regular right. Icelander decks. When that Icelander is slapping you with a Fandal's fighting spirit in limited, you're just like, come on, <laughs> Michael. Yeah, that card's pretty good. Is. Yeah. Fandal's fighting spirit. Yeah. 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 Like someone, someone played scar for scar into blue, uh, red brothers in arms. And I was just like, what? Stop. Stop. <laughs> no, but you really, you'll get so far. Um, and I think that it's, it's a great way to sort of at least start in the game. If you're, if you're starting on deck building, or even if you've been in the game for a while, uh, I would really listen to, uh, that podcast with Michael Hamilton. I think that what he has to say is super valuable. Um, and it's a, it's just a great, a great fundamental. Yeah. Heuristic. So, <laughs> as you love to say. So there's a, a you know, talking about dynamic and versus linear decks, deck building philosophy, if you want to say, I think philosophy is basically what it is. 
there's there's the approaches that come into that like you just talked about the value equation that can actually fall into either so maybe like yeah a new set comes out you want to look at it from uh, a value standpoint value equation standpoint where are the best returns on these cards here the other piece and this is the piece that probably i personally look to more and you've you just used a few sort of uh, i guess examples before but it's like what are the most powerful cards like what are the things in the set that are doing the most powerful things and they're probably going to lead to uh that could lead to either linear or dynamic. I think in in the start of what you're looking at when you're deck building, they're probably going to lead to linear things first because you're going to identify uh, a card. You know, let's use Bloodsheath Glider as an example. How can I how can I break this card? How can I use this card to its fullest potential? Well, it's probably going to revolve around a pretty linear strategy. Build up as many rune chances as I can. Have an OTK turn. Um, but it might not at the same time, right? It might revolve around a synergistic card that is uh, a lot less so, a lot less sort of linear in nature. Um, hero abilities, I think, can potentially be like non-linear as well. When you see new heroes come out and sets, it's like, okay, what does their hero ability do? How can I utilize that in a game plan? How can I fold that into a game plan? You know, Ultim's a good example. Like this looks pretty one-dimensional, but actually once you start to get into it, it can be, you know, you come in on offense and then on defense, you use the ice rack to break up turns, for example. Um, probably i guess like other examples you know like how can i enable specific strategies maybe there's things on your mind already or you have these strategies out there already are there cards in the set that come out that can plug and play to synthesize you know how, how can you grow the strategy and is that linear or is it, is it more dynamic in nature i think the last thing as well is that you can look at a set you can look at sitting down to deck build you can take a linear sort of theory or idea or strategy so maybe it is the value equation on offense and plug that into a more dynamic build and take that to the next level. And I think that's kind of what we've we've seen with Icelander. I think it's what we've seen with some of these Ultim lists. And I think even with some of these fringe decks that have done well through Nationals, I think that's actually what we've seen is people take this idea of a bit more sort of linear approach and plug it into their, their dynamic shells. 100%. I agree with you on all fronts there. Cool. I think that's kind of going to do it for this look into you know philosophy of deck building kind of how to build some of the best decks right now it's gonna be interesting to see maybe last question i have for you brennan is like where do you think we go from here like do you think we continue to see the growth and uh power of dynamic decks take over worlds dynasty or do you maybe see that some linear builds start to come back and it's not like we don't have linear deck. like yeah. fires if not one of the best decks in the format right now and it's pretty linear in nature yeah, so if I talk about going back like to some place, I, w- I, w- I would say go back to sort of you either play the Premier Aggro deck or you play this sort of fatigue deck, you play this defensive deck. Uh, and those being the only two reasonable options like competitively. Uh, I don't ever want to go back there. Do I think we will? I think yes. Like I think it doesn't take a lot. Um, and it's, the offenders are really the aggressive decks. Like we need, it, we only need like one more Super Premier Aggro deck on the chain level. Or we need a deck like Prison to come in and hate out like all these uh, sort of police decks like Icelander, like you know, like the Azalea. It's so funny I'm saying that hero's name, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> Prism really kept a lot of those like those heroes from being able to come in and balance the meta. And yeah, I don't think it takes a lot in terms of design for something to come back in and take us back to that place. But at the same time, because of Living Legend and because of the game's sort of you know active ban list, we could that could be easily rectified as well. But um, yeah, hopefully we stay here. Uh, I think we're in a healthy spot right now. Probably one of the best metas Flesh and Blood has ever been in, um, at least since Crucible of War, 100%. Um, but yeah, those are my thoughts. Good closing thoughts. I'm interested to see where we go next. I, I too feel that these quote-unquote mid-range decks, these decks that are generally more dynamic in nature, I'd love to see them flourish. I'd love to see different 
iterations and options as well. Um, I'd like to see some of those decks gain some some powerful options in Dynasty to potentially use and leverage uh, to be able to fight maybe some of the... I think, you know, if you look at, at the more dynamic decks right now, they're pretty... They're pretty disruptive in nature, right? Yep. So they can even disrupt these uh, these other dynamic decks. I'd love to see some some ways to be a bit more resilient for those dynamic decks, or to have you know slightly more on their power curve to uh, to be able to fight and combat those. Uh, maybe you know maybe you're a dog into some of the aggro, but you can fight these disruptive decks. Uh, you know, but really balance out the format a little bit and leverage some more heroes to 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 be viable in a format like class constructed yeah just don't not talking about blitz just don't just don't fatigue me uh i hate fatigue if it ever is a viable strategy you're gonna hear me complain because it sucks yeah all right well that's gonna do it for this episode 81 of arsenal pass we're just a week out from worlds next week we do have uh, a bit of a special episode and a preview of world championships uh with a special guest just want to sign off as well and say until next time, if you do want to follow us on Twitter, we are there. You can find Brendan at BrendanAPG. You can find myself at Fian underscore Dale. Uh, YouTube channel is closing in on 500 subscribers. 500? We 5, really walk back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 500 tens. Um, go and drop us a sub and a like, and uh, we'll be doing a bit of a giveaway post-Worlds for the not 500, but 5,000 subscribers sort of mini celebration for Arsenal Pass. Big thank you to all of our patrons, and until next week, we'll see you in the next one, Brendan. See ya. 500? 